Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Advent season. As we work our way through this time of year, we're looking at the many ways that Jesus is the way. And I hope you're enjoying and preparing. We're anticipating and preparing and expecting all that Jesus is going to bring forth and birth forth in our lives during this time of year. And we were two weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus is the way to life from John 14. Last week, Kurt did a great job in John chapter 1 looking at Jesus as the way of hope. And this morning, we're going to be in the story in John chapter 8, looking at Jesus as the way of grace. And so, I remember my first day on a college campus. It'll be forever engraved in my mind because it didn't quite unfold like I'd hoped and planned it to go. Iowa State University, I'm 18 years old. I'm signed up for all my classes. I've got the map on how I'm going to get to class one, and where my dorm was was quite a distance from where the classes were. And so I decided I'm going to bring my bike from home. You know, I'm going to bicycle my way to certain parts of my schedule. And so it's first day of class, first year on campus, first, <laughs> first class on the first day. I get on my bike. I come to the first intersection I'm going to cross. And I'm crossing, it's green light to me, I go across, and this very large bronze sedan decides to not follow their red light and turns right and just runs right into me. It was a bronze sedan into mountain bike. Here's, this, here's the scene of the mountain bike at the end of the... So I hit the, the car, kind of hit, I hit the front corner panel, and I fly up over the top and kind of do a tumble on the hood, and I land on the pavement of this four-lane intersection in Ames, Iowa, on my way to my first class. I kind of come to a little bit. I open my eyes, and literally right in front of my face is the front license plate right here. And I blink a few times, and I recognize, get out of the intersection. Get out, of the, get out of the road. So I kind of get up, scoop up my bike, drag my bike over to the side. And what do you think the car did? Gonzo. Now you think I would have that license plate number. Can't think of it for the life of me. So I get to my first class a bit late. And you know, on a college campus for freshmen, it was an 8 a.m. class, which you know, freshmen, that's kind of how it works, right? The freshmen get the 8 a.m. Monday mornings, right? It's 8 a.m. class, the professor was wanting to be exceptionally antagonistic towards those who were late and wanted to have a specific conversation with those of us, I, I think I was the only one who rolled in late. So after class, I have to walk up to the prof's desk and explain why I was late to my first class on my first day of my freshman year. And I give him the line that every professor thinks, no. I said, Professor, I'm sorry, I got hit by a car. <laughs> exactly. Like, it's like, oh, I, I, you know, I had a little scrape here or there to try to provide the evidence. He gives me the look like, just don't let it happen again. So a little bit later on that day, who do you think calls? Mom calls, right? Right? Mom wants to know how the first day for her oldest son went, 
right, on the college campus. He's like, hey, how did your first day go? I said, well, mom, it didn't quite go like I thought it was going to go. He says, oh, I'm sorry, honey. What happened? I said, mom, I got hit by a car. <laughs> Being a parent now, thinking about how I framed it up to her was not super helpful, you know, like, oh, I'm just picturing like my college student or my high school student telling me something. So I said, yeah, I got hit by a car and the car pulled away and I was late to my first class and I'm okay though. But other than that, it was a great first day. And she said something like this, well, honey, it can only get better. (laughs) I don't know if you ever have those moments in life where you just want a second chance. Like, you ever have like, I wish I could just do all that over again? I wish I could just act like that day never occurred. Let's just treat tomorrow as if it was today. And let's forget that today ever occurred. Anybody been there? So I just decided, like, I want to treat day two as if it's my day one. The problem was no bike. By the way, that was the only bicycle experience for Simpson at Iowa State. It lasted like 30 yards, I think. But the story we're looking at this morning in John chapter 8 gives us a window into how Advent sends us the gospel of second chances. And if you've come in today, maybe you're looking for a, I just wish I could do that over. I just wish I could forget that. I just so wish I could treat tomorrow as if today never happened. In that space, Jesus comes in Advent, and specifically in John chapter 8, to a woman who obviously was searching And Jesus wants to speak into her situation, and not only hers, but ours. So in John chapter 8, here is the setting in verse 1 and following. He goes to the Mount of Olives, a common space where Jesus would gather and teach and lead from. At dawn, notice that in verse 2, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So if you wanted to know the origin of the sunrise service, here it is. I happen to believe it takes Jesus to pull it off, just saying, right? So Jesus is the original, gather the people in the temple courts and have a sunrise sermon. And as typically in Jesus, there's quite a crowd and a group of those who were kind of for him, those who were a bit curious, those who were skeptical, those who were against him. He's got the whole group kind of gathered around. Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. So that's New Testament language for like the religious leaders. So they would be the ones like the department of reli- the chair of the department of the religion on the local university campus. Think that. They're the ones who are supposed to be teaching people about God's ways and about righteousness and about how to live a life that honors God. Pharisees, teachers of the law, religious leaders, they're there and they've got a specific agenda. They bring in a woman caught in adultery. That would change the sermon a bit, I would think. That would be like, you know, right in the middle of his, whatever he was doing, this religious leaders bring in a woman who was caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Verse 5, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such 
women. Now, what do you say? So, a couple of things we want to observe about this first part of the story is, notice that they're bringing in a woman solo. Last time I checked, it takes two for adultery. Where's the man? So, good chance the man was a part of the whole scheme here, right? The religious leaders had clearly, no doubt, probably paid their way into this setup, probably got a certain guy to do a certain act, to be a part of their certain plan, and basically they're just going to drag this woman into this scene to trap Jesus, to try to corner him into a setting or a situation that they didn't think he could get out of. And that's why verse 6 reads this way. Look at verse 6 in your Bible. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So here's the issue here is that they're, they're tossing Leviticus 20. Write Leviticus 20 in the margin of your Bible there. That's the backdrop you can look at for basically they know, Jesus would know, the Torah, the Jewish law would say, if you're caught in adultery, stone the one caught in adultery. They're throwing his own law at him but they're trying to corner him with it because the Romans wouldn't allow the Jews to kind of exercise execution authorities. You didn't just stone anyone without Rome signing off on it. So if he follows the Leviticus 20 law, he's in hot water with the Romans. If he doesn't follow Leviticus 20 law, he's in hot water with the Jews and the Jewish leaders. They're like, we got him. He's got no way out of this one. If he chooses to stone her, Rome's coming after her. If he chooses not to, we're coming after him. That's what the religious law, see? And so in this scene, he bends down and he starts writing in the ground. Scholars do a lot of debate about what he wrote. I think their response probably gives us a window into perhaps what he was writing. I put in your notes the categories we have for sin in general. There's sins of the flesh versus sins of the spirit, two large kind of categories that theologians have for years and years kind of said, you know, the sins of the flesh are the ones that get all the attention in the news headlines and the social media feeds. As I put in your notes, right, they're the ones, lust, greed, gluttony, drunkenness, slothfulness, they're the ones obvious, kind of just the ones that are up front out in the open, a woman caught in adultery, and then there's sins of the Spirit. These are a little more subtle. These are the under-the-surface ones, like pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and cynicism and judgmentalism. They're not nearly as colorful. They don't get as much attention. I mean, when's the last time you heard someone getting canceled in our culture today because they were self-righteous or because they were bitter or because they were cynical? No, they're getting canceled mostly for sins of the flesh. So here's my speculation on what Jesus was writing in the ground was I think he looked below the surface of everyone who was on this scene and was writing most likely sins of the Spirit that were all around him. And as he wrote, perhaps with their names, who knows, but he's writing in a way that is quickly a mirror 
back into the heart and the soul of those who have set this whole scene up. And that's why when you see the response here, look at verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. That's why I think it had to be something in the, in the dirt, in the ground, that was very self-reflecting and self-revealing. Because they were very energized to trap, to condemn, to judge, and now they're under conviction. You know, there's a healthy side to guilt. The healthy side to guilt is it brings you to a place of conviction to lead you to repentance. There's an unhealthy side of guilt which goes the route of shame. But in this case, I think there's something stirring because the older ones first, they drop their stones until only Jesus is left with the woman standing there. And then Jesus straightens up and asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one, notice in your Bible, condemned you? See, that's the, that's the key word in the story. Like you get a window into the heart of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and the crowd around with the stones ready to have at this woman in adultery and ultimately have at Jesus. Remember, the whole setup isn't just to trap the woman. It's really to trap Jesus. And so he's writing all these things, revealing what's really in their heart. They feel a sense of conviction, and they start dropping their stones of condemnation. And in this whole storyline, we get a window in what I'm calling in your notes the gospel of second chances. And I want to look at three realities from this gospel of second chances for this woman's life and for our lives today. The first thing I want you to see is the gospel of second chances. Jesus is seeing people as eternal beings made in God's image. Notice back in verse 4 how they refer to the woman. They say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Not like, hey, Jesus, this is Sarah. She was caught in the act of adultery. Or Jesus, this is Rebecca. She was caught in the act of adultery. No, it's a it's a distancing term. They just refer to that woman because there's power in naming, right? Naming communicates value. It communicates you're seen and you're heard and you're understood. And Jesus is revealing here, I think in this story, right, the tendency to kind of objectify people, in this case, objectify a woman. Never mind the fact that God's definition of a person is an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal plan in God's great universe. That's a person. A person is an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal plan in God's great universe. That's a person. That's not an object to fulfill and carry out your plan, which is how they treat her. They didn't have a name for her. This woman, she's just a a tool on the chessboard of the game that they're playing to trap Jesus. And Jesus is treating her the way God says a person is to be treated, with a name known and seen and heard. Which, by the way, this is why as a church family, why are names such a big deal for us around here? Some of you have asked that before. Because we believe that's really inherent to what it means to be a person and a family together. That we want to know each other's names. That matters to be a part of a church where you're known. I know we're not always going to get it right. I'll call somebody Tim and they're Joe. And I'm sorry when I do that. I'm trying. And you're really gracious to correct me. 
in that. But I hope we create an environment, right, where, you, where we see you, we know you, we hear you, we recognize you have a story and a history, and it's embodied in the power of a name. And maybe you've been in environments where it hasn't been that way. Or you haven't felt like you've really been known and heard and understood for who you were as a person. Advent says, and Jesus says, the gospel he brings is very personal. You are an eternal being. You are made in God's image. You are not some result of random collision of molecules that evolved over time and chance. That is not who you are. Students, that is not who, I don't care how many Letters by the professor who's waxing eloquently about the origin of you as a person. Hear this loud and clear. God is not confused about who you are as a person. You have been made in His image, Imago Dei, fashioned and created by His hands. You are an eternal being with plans and purposes in this amazing world that He's made. You're known and stamped and created by the hand of an almighty God. You are not just some being that just kind of randomly came about through collision of molecules, evolving over time and chance, just caving to the cravings of whatever your desires want to lead it to. That is not who you are. And we are very confused right now as a culture on the definition of a person. And Jesus is not, because He's the one in conjunction with the Father and the Holy Spirit who come and fashion together this unbelievable gift called a human being and a human life made in His image, endowed with dignity and splendor, known, created with a name. And maybe God brought somebody to church this morning or somebody watching online today to simply hear this. God knows you. He sees you. And He calls you by name today. That's the starting point for the gospel of second chances. You're not just a man, a woman. You're a person Stamp with the Imago Day. And the religious leaders at the time had completely lost sight of this because they were treating a person as an object to get done what they want to get done. And that's how the Pharisees could be classified as kind of playing religious games with people. And Jesus, the way of Jesus, says, no, this is an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal plan in God's great universe. And so that's the first element when we look at the gospel's second chance. The second one comes out in the response of the scribes and Pharisees versus the response of Jesus to her failure is that we embrace failures as opportunities for new beginnings. Like the scribes and Pharisees, did you notice like their response immediately to her failure was response with condemnation and punishment. The word condemn there in the New Testament, it means to sentence. If you remember several weeks ago with the Sermon on the Mount, it did a whole message on the role of judgment, one that leads to condemnation, right? We called it bad crino. That was the language Jesus used. 
in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is ultimately on display right here. This is a judgment of her. It's a categorization and a characterization of her personhood, and it's condemning and sentencing her. That's what the religious leaders are doing. Which, by the way, that's most of the social media feeds that have any kind of dialogue about it. It's mostly bad crino. Which is why it's affecting our psyche so much. Because we're immersing ourselves with a lot of bad crino. And Jesus is trying to say, there's another way. The Jesus way is not to turn a blind eye to her failure. It's to love her into goodness. It's to, it's to love her with this belief that she can learn and grow and be different from this. That's Jesus' way. It's not ignoring the failure. We'll get into that just more in a minute. It's recognizing this woman has, she committed an act of adultery. Whatever the setup was, she participated in it. And the scribes and Pharisees are ready to grab the stone and sling the stone in sentence and judgment, bad crino upon her, condemn her. That's the way of the scribes and Pharisees. And perhaps that's what you've been on the receiving end of, maybe when you've failed. Or maybe that's a response that when someone has failed you, you're quick to sling some stones. Because the longer you live as a human, the more you recognize, like, we're really good at making mistakes. Like, aren't we? I mean, just being a human, I, I have a PhD in making mistakes. I'm very skilled at it. And this past couple of years, has anybody else been in this place? I mean, I've been in this last couple of years, and just it's hard being a human in the world, right, over these last couple of years, and you just, it just squeezes out all the wrong stuff at times out of you, and you go, why did I send that email? Why did I send that text? Why did I have that conversation with that tone? Why did I respond that way? It's embarrassing, like the depth of human failure and the mistakes that I can make and the ripple effect from that, like, and I'm just so thankful, like Advent reminds me, it's like Jesus doesn't ignore those failures, there's, there's things to learn and grow. He loves me enough to say, we're going to grow and develop, it's called maturity from this place of failure, versus maybe a good question to ask is, what was the environment like in which you were raised when you failed and when you made mistakes? What was your family of origin's response to mistake and failure? It gives you a window in perhaps why you might be struggling with your own self-talk in your own mistakes and failures. Because if you were raised in an environment that was quick to condemn, quick to judge, quick to sling stones when you failed, does that understand where you've grown up as an adult and perhaps have to unlearn some things in the new family of Jesus? Because Jesus says there's a different way. It's the way of grace it's the way that loves us into goodness, that treats us in a way that we can learn, grow, develop, mature from this place of failure. That failure doesn't get the last word. That failure isn't the end. And if it's not just specifically on the receiving end of failure, it's also what happens when those around fail you and how you respond. What comes out of your heart quickly? Is it the way of the scribes or is it the way of Jesus? Is it pick up the stone and condemn, or is it having a grace and a patience and a love and a perseverance that continues to stay in the trenches with the brokenness, with the mess, and believing there's more yet to be written with this person's story? That's Jesus' way. 
And I'm sure this woman thought pretty much it was the end of the road when she got drug out into that scene because she knew the Torah well as, as anyone else. And she thought, this is the end of the scene. All the religious leaders with the stones, <clears throat> she's guilty, she knows it. It's probably Leviticus 20 moment for her until she meets Jesus who sees her, who knows her by name who believes that her failure isn't the end of the road, but it can be a journey, can be a step towards a new beginning, can be a step towards maturity, can be a step towards change. She's, she's never met anyone like Jesus, which is why in verse 10 says, has no one condemned you? And then verse 11, no one, sir, she said. And then he says, neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. See how he uses that? Like he uses the same word. And so the first element of this gospel of second chances is seeing people as created in God's image, stamped with the Imago Dei, and in ceasing spiritual being with an eternal plan in God's great universe, to see them the way God sees them in Jesus, and then embrace the failures as an opportunity for a new beginning, not as a justification for slinging the stone and sentencing and punishing. And the third element is there's this belief that Jesus has displayed in the story. It's more than who you are. It's about who you could be. Now, what often in this story gets, I think, overlooked is the last part of verse 11 when he says, neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. What's the last sentence? Go now and leave your life of sin. That Jesus is not soft on sin in this story or anywhere in the New Testament. There's nothing soft about Jesus' response to sin. Come on, this is the beginning stage that will lead us to Easter season when He eventually is going to be arrested and beaten and mocked and crucified and brutally executed at the hands of people who know He's innocent. Jesus is not soft on sin. He recognizes sin has to be dealt with. And to deny our sin is to deny our humanity. Part of being a human, as the Bible outlines clearly, when you're born into this world, you are born with a propensity to sin. That's why we're so good at making mistakes and hurting others. And that's why our news feed looks like it looks like and why the world looks like it looks because we're just, we're born with this propensity, this pull in the language of the New Testament, it's called our sinful nature. We inherited it. And that has to get dealt with. One of the most important questions in life is, what do we do with our sin? That's becoming a lost conversation in our world today, I believe. Sin is a big deal. It has to be addressed. What do you do with your sin? And commentary today, but well, I can just, you know, I can deny it. I can run from it. I can try to manage it in my own wisdom and strength. How's that all working out? The invitation of the gospel is you bring your sin to Jesus, he'll bring his healing grace to you. That's the gospel of second chances. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how long you've done it. It doesn't matter what you've stumbled into. It doesn't matter how deep and how dark that hole. There is no pit so deep that God's love and grace aren't deeper still. And this woman is finding out. Jesus says, hey, he sees her. 
He knows her. He knows her story better than she knows her story. And he says, I don't condemn you. Set the stones down. Go and leave your life of sin. Do you see that, church? The grace that Jesus poured out on her motivated her to go a different direction with her life. That's true grace right there. Have you tasted that grace? Then you'll be motivated to want to, she's not going to want to go back to the life that she was living based upon this encounter that she had with someone she didn't know could treat her this way. She's going to live differently based on the grace that she's received in the gospel of second chances. Look at what William Barclay, a scholar, wrote about this section. In Jesus, this quote's in your notes, there is the gospel of the second chance. He was always intensely interested, not only in what a person had been, hear this, but also in what a person could be. He did not say that what they had done did not matter. Broken laws and broken hearts always matter, but he was sure that everyone has a future as well as a past. So here's Jesus looking this woman in the eye, and through his act of grace, through seeing her and knowing her, giving her this like, this life lesson, and hey, it isn't just about who you are right now, but it's about who you could be. As you lean into me, as you walk with me, as you experience this grace and this love, I mean, who you could be. Can you imagine? This is the only record we have of this woman in the Scriptures. I can't wait when we get to glory to find the woman of John 8 and to let her tell the rest of her story. I bet it's breathtaking. I don't think Jesus lacked for who's going to give like the testimony at the next synagogue gathering for grace when he's going to want to do a lesson on grace. Hey, who am I? I'll bet the woman from John 8 first, hey, let me, let me tell my story. Let me tell my story. And perhaps for someone today, you come in, you just go, if it was just about who you are right now, you, you, might, be at the end, you might be done D-O-N-E and Jesus saying to you today, it isn't just about who you are right now. It's about, in Jesus' name, who you could be. That's the gospel. Second, chances. So, my first week at college, it started getting hit by a car and ended with my first grade I ever received on a college campus, a big, fat, red F. I went to English prof, it was an English assignment, three, four-page paper, turn it in, end of the week, we all gather, we were all kind of nerved up as freshmen, like you're going to receive your first grade in your college years, and I'm staring at the paper, a big, fat, red F. And here's the irony, the subject of the paper was me. It was the classic, like, you know, give us a three-page biographical sketch of your life. Professor, how do you fail me a paper about myself? How do you do that? So I got back to my dorm room. I called my mom. 
I said, Mom, I, I don't think I'm cut out for this deal. I start the week getting hit by a car. I end the week with a big fat F on my first paper in college. She's like, classic mom. I love you, mom. Classic mom. Oh, it's okay, honey. It's okay. What was the paper about? I said, Mom, it was a paper about me. And then she said, well, what did you say? I just talked about my life and... It can only get better, honey. <laughs> Which parentheses, by the way, I learned a couple weeks later, this professor's intent with that whole assignment was to instill the fear of you-know-what in all of us. And so when I looked around the room and saw pretty much everybody had an F or a D on a paper about themselves, and then she stood up and said, you're probably all wondering about this grade that you've all received. And it was, she wanted maximum attention on the details for writing a paper. She said, I didn't pay one ounce of attention to what you said. I just paid attention to how you said it. So if you're going to pass my class, you're going to learn how to say things. Message received, <laughs> message heard. But I thought about those two instances of my first seven days at Iowa State. And I want to, this picture. I think today, I think someone today that's like a window into how you feel about the circumstances and the realities of your life. And what I want you to hear loud and clear today is Advent is God sending Jesus into that. That's Advent. Advent says the busted up and twisted places and the big fat red F's of our life, don't get the last word. That does not define you in Jesus' name. Advent says He sends Christ for that. The John chapter 8 stories of our life, that's not the end. That is a reality that He will meet and invade and use. Because he says to you today, church, I've come, Advent, I've come to bring a gospel of second chances. I see you. I know you. I created you. You're an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal plan in God's great universe. And your failures, your busted up, bent up, twisted up places, your big fat red F experiences in life can be a springboard to a new beginning because it is not just about who you are right now. It's about, in Jesus' name, who you could be. That's the hope of Advent. That He has come for us, no matter how deep, no matter how dark, no matter how twisted, no matter how much failure, it is not the end. If you've got breath of life in your lungs, if you're not dead, you are not done. And this is Advent 2021, and he's coming for you, and he's coming for me. Let's pray together. Worship team, come on up.
Father, I've believed for a few weeks now that um, you're going to bring some folks together today, either in this room or watching somewhere else. And perhaps it's just that image of the bent-up bicycle and the big fat red F. Somebody needed to hear loud and clear today that that is not the end of your story. And the hope and the grace of Advent is you come for us. And so right now, wherever you are, and maybe it's just internalizing and receiving this, this gift of being known and heard and understood. Maybe there's just some things about your background and past where you feel like the woman in John 8 and you just, maybe it's just been, you've been objectified, you've been treated not as the treasure that you are as a person. And today's a day just to release some of that and to know that in Jesus' name you are heard, you are seen, you are known, and you are named. Or maybe it's someone right now and you're holding on to a, some big fat red F's you feel like has been pronounced on your life. Or perhaps someone else, others have failed you deeply and you're holding it. And today's the day to release grace is getting what we don't deserve to internalize this grace to just let it wash over to release the hurt and the offense that either you've caused or others have caused you to just invite Jesus grace into that that's not the end to receive his love as an invitation into goodness and growth and maturity and then God would you just meet us and give us a vision not just for what is, but for what could be. Thank you for Advent. Thank you for light coming into the darkness. We receive today this gospel of second chances in Jesus' name.